Hey, it's Jared. By now, you've probably had a chance to reconcile and think about everything that happened on January 6th, the day the Capitol was stormed by QAnon and Trump supporters. The days of that event aside, it revealed a lot about how polarized our country is. And I'm not going to give some politician speech here that says we need to come together and unify that. No, that's not what this episode's about. This episode's about how we got here in the first place. And specifically, how has the internet become this tool, this vessel for really extreme ideologies to band together and affect the physical world, not just the cyber world? QAnon is just one example of many where people have had moderate views or very mainstream views and through algorithms and groups on the internet found very polarizing perspectives. Now, this happens for a variety of reasons, and we'll get into that in today's episode, but we really need to understand how something like January 6th can happen and how that specifically could be prevented going forward. So I sit down with Ethan Gutterman, an old friend of mine, who at one point himself was in the rabbit hole and how he got out and what can we do about internet radicalization to ensure that our democracy can make productive change and voice beliefs in a healthy manner. If you're interested in what happened on January 6th, how you yourself from watching YouTube videos and going on Facebook could really change your perspective, stay tuned. Hey, Ethan. Hey, Jordan. What's up? Not too much. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Midterm season starting up, so it's, it's pretty busy around these parts, but doing well. How about yourself? Same. Yeah, I got midterms uh, in about two weeks, I think, maybe a little bit longer, but this week wasn't too bad, so that's the upside, I suppose. But I'm really excited to talk to you today. I think for many of our listeners, our last episode was on artificial intelligence, and this one's on internet radicalization, so it seems like we're talking about the future and like tech and all of that, but I promise we're going to change soon if this isn't your thing. But I think this is really interesting because this affects so much more than just the internet and just kind of the future of social media. It, it really has effects far and wide. But before getting into any of that, Ethan, if you could tell us who you are and how you got into internet radicalization. Yeah, of course. So I am a first year student at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is a polytechnic school. I got started like getting into research about internet radicalization just when I could see myself getting radicalized <laughs> by the internet and just seeing how quickly my view on geopolitics and economics and just how our society functions was shifting based on the content I was seeing. And I was like, wow, I bet there are other people where the same thing's happening to them. And then little do I know, of course it is. It's happening to nearly all of us. Yeah, I think that's kind of the best way to get into a subject is that you find yourself at the center of it. And yeah, I think for anyone who ever has kind of gone down the YouTube or Instagram rabbit hole or, or, you know, or Reddit or whatever, you know, your preferred social media is, you've definitely experienced this to some degree. I feel like if you're at least into politics at some degree, even anything really, like if you look something up on Google and then the next day your targeted ads are going to be for whatever you looked up, the algorithms are all around us. This is true. This is true. It's it's unavoidable, even if you don't engage with it, I suppose. But we're throwing around this term internet radicalization a lot. And I know that could mean a lot of different things. Is this someone who's like, damn, I'm watching Ben Shapiro all of a sudden? Or is this QAnon? Because those are two very different things, I think, for a lot of people, right? Some people say, oh, you know, conservative talk radio was around 
for all these years, right? How is a YouTube video any different? And then some people say, no, this is a unique brand of problem, right? We, we also don't see random strangers meeting on the internet and then burning the capital. So what is internet radicalization? And how did this word kind of come into play in the era of the internet? So I think it's first important to examine what radicalization is first, and then you can take that and look at it, what it means on the in the 21st century. So radicalization is just you hold a belief. So an example could be, I want to help my country before I want to help other countries, which is a very common sentiment for a majority of Americans. It's, they think, why should we get involved with foreign policy when our own country is so messed up? Okay, so you have this belief. And what you would do prior to the 21st century, is you would just talk with the people around you who could have very similar beliefs, could have very different beliefs, and that could create an echo chamber or could push you in one direction. And that is how you could get radicalized or de-radicalized into believing a certain belief. Radicalization just basically means having a belief and it gets changed in a, either in a more, the magnitude increases or goes down. Looking at that with the internet, most people now, instead of asking their friends or peers, their colleagues, their family members these questions, they type it into YouTube. They go on TikTok and they see a video about it. They look on Instagram and they see an Instagram story about it, or they go on Reddit or something. It's no longer just doing it with your immediate community, it's with the whole world. That's a really good distinction, I think, is that, right, there was always these kind of groups, you could argue, right? There was always extremist political groups that met in person and would talk and kind of rile each other up, I suppose. And I mentioned talk radio kind of being similar. But I guess what the internet has done, as you mentioned, is just broadened who's involved here, right? When, you, when you're meeting at a local, I don't know, club of conservatives or whatever, like a high school conservative club in the middle of the 20th century, it would be 10 or 20 people like-minded like you who would just kind of talk and push each other maybe in one direction. But now you can find almost anyone with the exact same belief as you, and they would kind of embolden you opposed to being limited by your geography. Yeah, exactly. Like, let, let's imagine for somehow you are a socialist in 1960s America living in Kansas. How are you supposed to find other socialists to interact with? Like, let, let's just assume you are gifted the information. You wake up from a slumber and boom, you're a socialist. You don't have anyone to interact with. There's nothing you can do. But now with the internet, you can go online, find some random Twitch streamer with a thousand viewers, find a Discord call, and then boom, you found a whole new community. Now, sometimes these things may be good. Like you might be going being de-radicalized from something going more towards the center or it could go the other way where you could have a belief that's relatively common and then get extremely more radical in either direction into the political left or political right yeah so i think most people would agree that it, the kind of mechanisms by which our political dialogue have changed and i mentioned this a bunch on previous episodes is that right as kind of this idea of globalization occurs you're going to get more and more connectivity to random people which allows you to explore these beliefs and I think the, the debate that we'll get into a little bit later here is, does this simply unearth beliefs that already exist and enable more people to hold them? Or does this just create something totally unique that couldn't have existed before? But before getting into that, what kind of structures do social media platforms and YouTube and Discord and all these other things have that enable radicalization? Algorithms being one, but how does that kind of work for anyone who's unfamiliar with that? So you have to look at the basic business model of social media platforms nowadays. It's no longer selling an ad space. Like Facebook does not make most of their money on the ads themselves. Where companies like Facebook and Twitter 
and Reddit really make their money is selling what the users are typing in. Google makes most of their money from selling the information on when, what you type into Google. They sell that to advertisers to create better advertisements for you to see. So how does this work on a platform like YouTube, for example? So you type into a search bar, let's say in the 2016 election, you type in Hillary Clinton 2016 president because you want to see what Hillary Clinton's platform is in 2016. All right, so you see a YouTube video about it, and then that tells the algorithm, all right, this person might be into politics. So then you send the algorithm, sends them a whole bunch of different political content from the left and right spectrum. They click on the next video, and the next video is a video about Trump and about what Trump is, is in the MAGA movement, what that's all about. And then the next thing you know, you're getting sent a video about something that's very common in 2016 was like the owning liberals, like the whole Ben Shapiro epic meme compilations. Those were really common. Those radicalized a lot of people because there's um, a documented pipeline from going from those kinds of like meme compilations about owning the libs to far right content creators that are now removed from YouTube, but in 2016, 2017 were scarily common on the platform. Mm. What you're alluding to, the podcast Rabbit Hole, which Ethan and I are both massive fans of, kind of documents the exact step-by-step process that, that can kind of bring you to this point, and we'll link that below. But I think it's interesting that, one, as you point out, the algorithms themselves kind of create this vicious cycle where you'll, you'll type in something that gets sent to advertisers. Advertisers are then willing to pay more to the, the Facebook, you know, any social media site to then advertise only to get more data and so on and so on, which is, I think, a major theme of internet radicalization is that it happens exponentially, or at least I've noticed, is right. It starts off very subtle and then very quickly makes large jumps from, you know, kind of standard Republican or Democratic content to the extremes on either end. I also think it's important. Yeah, go ahead. This is also does not involve only politics. This is a main way ISIS is recruiting members for the organization is they'll find a lonely kid who's probably a teenager who is Muslim. And they, for example, this is really common in France. This is how multiple terrorist attacks happen in France. It's because in France, they have a very large movement to secularize and they discourage all religion. So when someone who is devout Muslim hears this, they hear that they're being attacked for the religion. It's very obvious for them. It's like, I would do this too, is just to turn to what you're being targeted for. And mm. these people, ISIS would target people on Facebook and feed them extremely distorted views of Islam, about Wahhabism, and all this crazy stuff, distorted views on Islam to get people to commit horrible atrocities and the same thing is happening now with bad faith actors on twitch and bad faith actors on uh, other social media platforms to get people to do heinous stuff like what happened on january 6th at the capitol these radicalization have real life impacts and it's really important that we pay attention to how the social media companies use these powerful algorithms this can go for any subject i completely agree with you and as you mentioned january 6th kind of was this whole culmination of a lot of different discussions about how social media and the internet in general has radicalized people to a point where there's actually a cohesive mob of people who are willing to not only storm the Capitol, but also afterwards say, wow, what what was I doing? And there's kind of been this whole wave of people, some of them pressured, some of them not, basically saying, wow, I just made a, a horrible mistake. So the question is, is how can you kind of brainwash people into doing something like that just by watching YouTube and going on, you know, forums on the internet. Yeah, I think QAnon is probably the best example we can see in contemporary life on internet radicalization in action. 
So the main way the QAnon conspiracy really started getting spread was on YouTube and then on Facebook when YouTube started cracking down on conspiracy theory content in like 2017 and 2018. So on Facebook, you just get invited to a group that has hundreds of thousands of members from around the world, but mostly in America. And if you question the belief, and just real quick, what QAnon is in simple terms is it's basically a belief that there is a, a deep state controlling American politics, culture, Hollywood, and there's a cabal of pedophile. It's really complicated and doesn't make any sense if you think about it rationally. But a lot of people believe it because it's exciting and fun. Like there are some conspiracy theories that are totally harmless, like Bigfoot and stuff like that. Like, okay, that's fun. But when it's about real life stuff, it's a little different. But on these QAnon Facebook groups, if you had any negative opinions on it, like you would say, hmm, it doesn't really make any much, much sense. You would get lampooned. You could just get taken off the group. They encourage like a hive mind effect where they want you to believe what everyone else believes. And then that allows you to feel like you're a part of something. A lot of people who are going on these QAnon forums, they're lonely. Like they might be socially awkward. They might be lonely, all these different things. And they can find friends through these groups. Like it's a, I remember hearing on a, on a Washington Post article how someone described QAnon as a family. Yeah. Because they felt they, they couldn't find anyone else and they were able to find a home in these radical groups. And so that really is a social draw for a lot of people. Yeah. So, yeah, for anyone who's unaware of QAnon at this point, which if you asked probably four months ago what QAnon is, only some really intent political people would be able to answer that. But now it's a more common term. As Ethan mentioned, it's kind of this whole deep state idea that in the basement of this pizza shop in Washington, D.C., there's a cabal of sex pedophiles run by politicians. Again, it doesn't make any sense. And the actual substance of it functionally doesn't matter because what QAnon is you know, a few years down the road, there will be a new conspiracy theory to replace it. So it's kind of this overall process that we're more interested in. And I think, as you mentioned, this really does target people. Internet radicalization in general targets people who don't have a strong social network outside of the internet, right? People who engage in political dialogue often with their friends don't really feel the need to join kind of fringe groups looking for belonging, where, as you mentioned, a key incentive of these internet radicalized groups is to create this incentive of belonging. So kind of how, for someone who feels like that is a healthy coping mechanism, how do you think you track that you're falling into this and not actually finding a group of friends, if that makes any sense? Well, I can use myself as an example. I really started getting into politics and doing research about stuff in 2016 after the presidential election. I think it happened for a lot of people just seeing Donald Trump get elected to president was like, wow, holy crap, I can't believe Donald Trump is the president of the United States. That's crazy. So after that, I was like, all right, there's got to be something wrong with the system. So you start typing stuff into YouTube and you find I went down a left wing rabbit hole. It definitely could have gone much worse. And it's definitely also with the cultural carrots and sticks of growing up in Los Angeles and being having a lot of liberal friends and going to a, a school that had very uh, much so a liberal bias. But I realized I was like, wow, I have some very radical beliefs about the world. And I was like, maybe this is a little much. So I did more research and I talked to people outside of my view, which I think is very important. You need to always remember to kind of correct your bubble. If you're super far like left communist, talk to some people that are neolibs. Talk to some people that are Republicans. You need to question your beliefs and you'll usually find out you're right. But sometimes you won't. And that's important. But 
to get someone out of the rabbit hole, it's it's really tough, man. Because like <laughs> like we talked about before, they're lonely. These people are they usually enter the rabbit holes because they don't have anyone else. So it's really if it's a family member, you just gotta talk to them. Remember they're your family. They might be saying some really stupid stuff about how Joe Biden is being controlled by the radical left and the, the Green New Deal is what's causing the power outages in Texas. They might be telling you that and it's like so frustrating to hear that. It's like, how do you hold these beliefs? They just don't make any sense. But you need to remember they're your family. You need to just talk to them. That's the most important thing you can do is just talk. Yeah, I think dialogue is is definitely important. I think too, this is also where the idea of kind of the role of social media comes in. And we won't get too into that here I suppose, but the general idea of what is real and what is not. So for QAnon, the big point was a lot of the algorithms for QAnon pages got hooked onto the hashtag save the children, because right, the whole kind of center of this wacky conspiracy theory is about pedophilia. So this, there, there's people who see, you know, pages like save the children and, you know, who doesn't want to save children? I mean, I want to yeah. save children. Ethan wants to save children. So it, it's stuff like that. Then it's the initial hook. And then from there, if you're the right kind of persona, you get sucked into it. So I think that's really important. And I think as Ethan said, talking to people is also really important. There's probably more in there too, uh, again, about the role of social media, but won't get into that too much now, I suppose. But I do want to re revisit that question I talked about a little earlier, which is that there's kind of this, there's two schools of thought when it comes to internet radicalization, which is one that the internet produces beliefs on everything that could not exist without the internet, right? They are this unique fusion of, of talking with very random people that, that create things like QAnon. And there's another school of thought that says, no, these radical ideas were always out there, but people just couldn't express them in a manner that gained traction. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts as to what you think, take QAnon, for example, or take, you know, any other kind of massive radical belief and, and kind of what, where do you fall on that spectrum? Wow, that's a really good question. Yeah, I would definitely say, I mean, this is a, a kind of a spicy statement, but there are some times where radicalization can be good. Like if we get more people to believe in social justice and more like, for example, the, the historic uprising that was happening over the summer after the murder of George Floyd, a lot of people were radicalized by that. They saw, oh mm. my gosh, a cop literally put his knee on the neck of an innocent man for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Like, how do we live in a society where that's possible? And that radicalized a lot of people to believe in a lot better things and believe we need to create a more equitable society. So radicalization is not always bad. It's just when there's good, there's going to be bad. As, as many people that saw that video and started believing in social justice and started thinking that we need to create positive change in our world, someone else is probably getting turned on to QAnon. Someone else is probably getting turned on to a whole host of horrible things. I, I think that's a good point that you make, though, which is that Yes, to an extent, in, this, in the 1960s, it was radical to believe that non-white people had civil rights, right? Martin yeah. Luther King was not, was not anywhere toward the center. He was definitionally a radical. And now we realize, well, th this was a decent radicalization, right? So I think you make a good point here that sometimes pushing people heavy in one direction is not inherently a bad thing. I think the question I was more asking was, regardless of good or bad, do you think some of these radical beliefs could exist without the internet or did they all kind of exist before the internet and are now just becoming popular in pop, in pop culture? So I would say a lot of these ideas probably existed in academia for a long time. Like there mm -hmm. have been people discussing complex socioeconomic political issues for centuries. 
Mm. Like some of the philosophers from the Middle Ages, like Avicenna, for example, he was a, a Muslim philosopher during the Islamic Golden Age in like, this, I think like 800 AD, was basically talking about capitalism a thousand years before it was implemented in Europe. So academia has been way ahead of the ball in a lot of things. So I think they probably existed there. But no, I think for the for the common people, for the average Joe, to hear about these issues, the internet is totally changed how we get information. And that's what, it, that's what I think the most important thing. Radicalization only happens when you're able to get information. Now that could be actual news or it could be total made up stuff like with QAnon, but it doesn't matter. The internet has democratized information. That's a good way of putting it. I, I would definitely agree with that. And I guess it, it's hard to always in the moment determine what's what's a, a good belief and what's not because good is very subjective, right? That's kind of the whole idea behind a, a belief. Um, and we won't really get into the idea of the Overton window here, kind of what defines radical or not. But I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, the hindsight, I guess, and what circle something runs in. So the, the general takeaway I would advocate for is that you always want to talk to people. And that's, again, part part of why this podcast exists is you want to bring on people who might have that radical belief now, talk to them, and you might say, wow, this is really destructive, like QAnon, or maybe they do got a point here. And maybe I, I don't have to become as radical, but I need to at least consider this other opinion that I haven't thought of before. So my question then to you, Ethan, is given all the good and the bad here, what do we think needs to change, if anything, regarding internet radicalization? And this could be either on the social media end, on the government end, on the end of the press and media. Do you think any action should be taken, I suppose, to kind of combat internet radicalization? Great question. So right off the bat, I want to say these are all private platforms. So a, a, a lot of arguments you'll hear from people that want is like, we need to have free speech. And while yes, I think free speech is important, these are private companies and the First Amendment does not apply. So with that being said, I don't know. This is like, a, this is a super, super complicated question that I am not enough of a policy wonk. To this make. is too, uh, I am putting you in a, a rough position. Yeah, here, but. Uh, but my opinion is I think it's on both sides. I think the government needs to be stepping in and saying, I think it really comes down to public education probably and making mm. education better. Like, I don't really know how to explain it, but just it, this comes from people not being, or I guess getting civic education better, mm. like government classes, maybe taking a class on news itself and different kinds of information, how it's received and just adjusting our institutions for the 21st century. Mm. on the government end and on the the corporation's ends i think what the for example what google the the google the alphabet company is trying to unionize right now and one of the main reasons they've been trying to unionize is the employees of google want to push the corporation to do more things that the employees want them to do which is a big thing and facebook the same thing happened at facebook where um there was a, a, a strike, I don't remember for what, but there was a, the employees went on strike over, I think it was a not wanting to ban Trump. And uh, cause originally Zuckerberg didn't want to, but the employees were like, yo man, you gotta do it. He's a danger to the democracy. So they ended up doing it. So I think the employees of the companies can play a very large role. For example, if you're like a 4.0 computer science student at Stanford and you're a senior, literally every single tech company wants you to work for their company. So if you say, I only will work at your, like the best computer science majors only will work for companies that 
are moral, that is a great way to push these companies to do the right thing. And, an, and another thing you can look at in more of a cynical view is it's not good for the corporations to be responsible for creating these movements. Like is Facebook is, is obviously responsible for the creation of QAnon, or not creation, but the propagation of QAnon. And there could be civil suits. Like I know uh, Google is being taken to Supreme Court right now over an antitrust suit. They are definitely going to bring up the role of Google has played in internet radicalization. And this could definitely happen with Facebook. This could happen with a whole host of other websites. Yeah, I think you make a lot of good points there. I'm a big proponent of increasing civic education and a lot of other people have come on here are. And I think it's important because, right, the whole idea of kind of democracy and each person being able to have a belief and express that belief is in theory that that, that belief is subject to critique, refinement and change. And if we kind of allow internet radicalization to go untapped, then, then that doesn't happen, right? Now you kind of have this extremely polarized world where you're either just drawn to one end or the other, and then no one really, like democracy falls apart in the most basic sense. Second, I think it's interesting, kind of your point about leveraging employees to kind of push these actors, private and public, to do the right thing, especially private. I think it's, a, it's an interesting point. And yes, the Google lawsuit is going to tell a lot about how the American government is going to treat social media going forward. Hopefully we can maybe get an episode on that going forward. You're 100% correct when you said that our institutions are not equipped for this, right? A lot of the way that political science traditionally viewed ideological change and political participation is now behind the eight ball, where I guess some of the beliefs in academia were before it, now we're a little bit behind it. And I don't think we're extremely ready to understand how much of a role in both the 2016, 2020 elections and going forward, social media plays. Anything else you want to add, Ethan? One thing I want to say is I want to recommend, uh, I think Jared mentioned it, the podcast Rabbit Hole. It's from the New York Times by uh, one of their, like one of my favorite reporters, Kevin Roos, who's on the uh, opinion columns at the New York Times. Highly recommend everyone reads his column. I think it comes out on Mondays and Thursdays, but he is probably, to what I'm aware of, one of the best tech reporters and is definitely the leading voice in internet radicalization right now. So he has a podcast called Rabbit Hole, which is a great deep dive in internet radicalization. I think in total, it's like six or seven hours long. So I don't know, listen to it over a few weeks if you want. It's a great listen. I 100% agree. And we'll link that on our website uh, under our resources tab. So feel free to check there. Ethan, thank you so much for coming on. And if anything happens for internet radicalization or, or probably something else, we'll be happy to have you back on. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you, Jared. See ya. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. I'm happy to announce that on our website, on the initial scroll homepage, we have a curated list of episodes. Yes, our favorites, Adam and I's, that is. So take a look at those if you're a new member or if you want to recommend our show to someone who's never listened before. I want to give a huge shout out to Ethan Gutterman for coming on. He knows a lot about a lot of different political topics, so I wouldn't be surprised if he comes on in the future. Of course, thanks to Adam for the editing, Catherine for posting on social media, and all of you for listening and helping us understand politics together.